Peace be upon you, and welcome to this week's edition of Pathway to Peace, a show which takes an analytical look at the current issues and trends affecting us all, trying to find the answers to problems that affect our political peace, economic peace, social peace, and perhaps the noblest of them all, inner peace. From groundbreaking technological innovations to societal shifts, 2023 has been another roller coaster of events that has left an indelible mark on our lives. In this Pathway to Peace end of year special, we take a retrospective look at some of the most listened to episodes that aired throughout the year. From tackling issues such as loneliness, women's rights at the World Cup, through to the Israel Gaza conflict, 2023 was a troubled year for the world at large, and many of these issues were discussed here on the Pathway to Peace show, where we reflected over the wise words of His Holiness, Hazrat Mirza Masur Ahmed, who has been a beacon of light during this turbulent year. Our first clip is taken from an episode that aired back in February, entitled, It's Good to Talk, Tackling Loneliness. In this episode, the presenters reviewed an article published on the Guardian website titled, Some Weeks I Only Speak to the Postman, How to Escape Learned Loneliness. The article makes mention of the term friendship recession, after census data revealed that people were spending an ever-decreasing amount of time with friends. The episode sought to look at the causes of loneliness, and more importantly, what are the remedies offered by Islam? The presenters were Kaleem Anwar and Daniel Zia. You know, if you just look at the Islamic way of system, an Islamic society, the centre of any Islamic society uh, or any local society is the local mosque. Mm. And you required... um, uh, as part of um, an active member of that society to attend that mosque five times a day. Yeah. Now, that alone is such a great recipe yeah. for loneliness because, you know, when you get out of the house, you feel better anyways, and then you come to the mosque, you're required to come to the mosque, you're required to come to the mosque to attend the, fri- the Friday prayers as well, yeah. and then you meet people, and um, and, and not only that, that you're, you're able to meet others, you're able to talk about your problems and issues. Yeah. And yeah. there's plenty of support available. So, you know, there, there's so many inherent solutions that are available. To, are, are, you know, this particular studio is situated within the largest mosque in Western Europe, Beit yeah. al Mosque. Yeah. And this mosque is actually a complex. Mosque is supposed to be a hub of activity. Yeah. It's not just, uh, you know, there for prayers. Yeah. This particular mosque uh, has um, uh, a radio station. Yeah. It has a television station studios. It has a multi-purpose hall, which is available to the entire local community to be used yeah. for games, for, for conferences, for student exams, yeah. um, and all sorts of other activities. And obviously for prayers and um, and other things as well. Yeah, and that just that in some ways that sort of proves the principle that was mentioned in the first half of the show. They talked about there were some some sort of academics had said it's not so much about going off to the one-off event the one-off networking event mm. to make friends, but rather mm. it's almost a sort of the the regularity with which you meet yeah. people. And you, and, and you may not normally sort of go up to them, but the mosque provides that as a platform, doesn't it? Absolutely, 100%. You know, if it's it's a familiar environment. You you, you come to that environment and, and that familiarity gives you, um, you know, gives you those good hormones um, naturally. And, yeah. and then, um, as we discussed before, that, you know, you're able to meet people, like-minded people, yeah. people of your age, young, old, 
and uh, that alone gives you i mean it's 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 not just a um to give you a very crude example it's 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 not a it's not a you know once a week yeah. uh, you know church service this yeah. is something that you require to do five times a day yeah and i guess this, i mean I'm, I'm, and why is this i guess it's origins the origins of all of this this sort of um this approach to life i guess it for me there's a there's a a really a, a pivotal verse in the holy quran um which if i read the translation from it sort of sets the almost gives the sort of all-encompassing sort of remedy to to this problem that we're, that we're discussing it comes from chapter 4 verse 37 uh, and the translation re- reads as and worship god and associate nothing with him and show kindness to parents and to the children and to the orphans and to the needy and to the neighbor who is a kinsman and to the neighbor who is a stranger and uh, the companion by your side and the and the wayfarer the traveler and those whom your right hands possess surely god does not uh, love an arrogant uh, or the boastful so various various categories there mm. and and i suppose when you look at that doesn't leave anybody else. i was just going to say there's no <laughs> one that's been left out there there's not one section of society um be it the old the elderly the the young people that live in that sort of vicinity of it or, or who've come from outside um i mean the fact the fact that it sort of even says you know that at one point it says and and, and the neighbor who is a stranger yeah you know um or or, or, in, or in the wayfarers as well the travelers as well there's just there's no room for um i mean if, if one was to sort of plot that you know thinking back of school days you kind know, of maths lessons if one was to plot sort of the venn diagram there's just no one that's sort of left out and I feel as if that's all, that is our, that's the basis from which we sort of come from. Yes, because the word neighbor in use in Islam um, it, uh, has a very wider meaning. Yeah. So uh, a neighbor is not just somebody who is living to your right and left and uh, in the front of your house. Neighbor is somebody. So if you're walking on the street, yeah. neighbor is somebody who's walking with you on that street. Yeah. Uh, if you're on the train, neighbor is somebody who is actually traveling with you on the train. Yeah. So it is a very. And if you're a country, neighbor is uh, your neighbors would be you know the the countries which are around you, and therefore it's your responsibility yeah. to to support those countries. Yeah. Um, let me read out. Um, a small quotation yeah. uh, from the fifth head or the current head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Hazrat Mirza Mashur Ahmad. He said um, this during a meal he served to the neighbors uh, of the Fazl Mosque uh, where he used to live before. Um, he said, and I quote, if a person understands the true meaning of what constitutes as a neighbor and then they try to fulfill the rights of their neighbors, you will see that disorder will disappear from society and for a believer, a true occasion of Eid is that in which all disorder is lifted away from the world. Who is one's neighbor? The promised Messiah, peace be upon him, has said that people living within a radius of hundred, hundred kos are your neighbors. So even those living within a hundred miles are in fact one's neighbors. Under this definition, no one is outside the scope of being one's neighbor. Unquote. When you think about that event, um, the fact that this is the head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, who in that particular event that you've just taken the quote from, it wasn't so much addressed that, for example, the VIP, the dignitaries, the local, you know, the you know, the, the sort of the how can I say the bourgeoisie of society. Yeah, exactly. These were neighbours. These are yeah, literal neighbours to absolutely, the mosque. Absolutely, yeah. Which is 
I mean, I don't know if the neighbours sort of appreciated or understood the sort of the the, the stature um, of His Holiness, but the fact that that was just, you know, the proof that was right there, how the important, such as the, how can I say, the importance of treating your neighbours well. Um, there was an interesting, um, obviously many, many had these, the sayings of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of God be upon him. It's one that just comes to mind, because now that we're talking about sort of neighbours, is sort of this incident where um, where the Holy Prophet peace upon him was sort of remarking about t- taking care of one's neighbours hmm. and then to, to to the point that for example uh, there's a comp- the, uh, the companion that was sort of you know, narrating this incident sort of mentioned that that the Prophet was sort of stressing the sort of the need of taking care of, of, of the neighbours so much yeah. at one point he thought maybe they would be included in including sort of the, the, the laws of inheritance. Inheritance, exactly. Which is just incredible. Which is mind-boggling, yeah. staggering, absolutely. And that yeah. just, just goes to show the importance Islam places on peace in the society, yeah. on establishing a good brotherly relationship with, with anybody who's around you, irrespective of the caste, creed, faith, um, or color. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, one more narration yeah. that uh, I have here from the Holy Prophet of Islam, may peace and blessings of... Um, Allah be upon him. He said, he who believes in Allah and the last day must not put his neighbor to inconvenience. He who believes in Allah and the last day must honor his guest. And he who believes in Allah and the last day must speak beneficially or keep quiet. So again, you know, some very basic rules of of um, uh, of maintaining peace and order in the society, as well as maintaining, you know, good brotherly relationships between people, between people of all sorts of uh, backgrounds, um, which uh, I dare say is a great solution to loneliness as well. Uh, you know, this is it. I think, you know, people don't realise, I guess, the sort of how Islam, the social etiquettes, I think, that it sort of prescribes or lays down. And and it's, it's just an irony that people don't see it. People may, from an outside point of view, may feel, may feel like, oh, but it's, you know, it's a very prescriptive faith or... But it's sort of it's providing these sort of remedies, and it's and it's for one to choose or not choose. But the fact that um, you know there's a there's a you know you mentioned for example the the, the stressing the the importance of looking after one's neighbours. So fine, so so we do that. But it, but there are various sayings, prophetic sayings that sort of talks about. So, so what are the rules of engagement, for example? And there's a, there's a particular saying of the Holy Prophet peace be upon him, where he says, if you if you wish to mention the faults of your friend. Mention your own faults first, hmm. so it just it, it gives the sort of it it explains that fine it's all well and good sort of you know keeping you know keeping contact with various people but it sort of it, it lets you know that there's just no hmm. point sort of gossiping or just you know sort of you could meet but if you're meeting sort of from for, for for negative reasons I think that's what I'm trying to get at you know it reminds me of the verse of the Holy Quran actually which yeah. actually talks about um, um, uh, if you um, if you backbite yeah. You're actually that's akin to eating the flesh of your brother. Yeah, those are the very words of the verse of uh, of the Holy Quran. Exactly, and I, exactly that. I think that's it's these sort of social etiquettes, which which is a shame. Really, it feels as it feels as if the, the you know that's what's missing sometimes. Um, and 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 if people sort of kind of connected connected back to sort of what 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 what, what brotherhood or you know sort of sisterhood what family is like in society, then they would sort of relate. Um, and the, yeah, I mean, when you hear, we take it we take it to the most basic of things, you know, the fact of in Islam, 
it's seen as even a smile towards a sort of a stranger. It's seen as, a, as an act of charity. It is an act of charity, absolutely. A, a couple of other things that I think must be mentioned here. So, yeah. um, uh, you know, when when people uh, criticize Islam and, and, and say that, uh, you know, it is a prescriptive faith, well, it's, it's actually a way of life. Mm. Islam is not just a faith. It is actually a way of life. And it reminds me again of... Um, uh, one of the narrations of uh, the Holy Prophet of Islam. Uh, we, you were talking earlier about, you know, this, um, uh, uh, the, the the pandemic of mm. depression in the in the millennial, millennial especially mm. because of, you know, social media. You go to Instagram and you see somebody who ha- apparently has a picture-perfect per- life. Yeah. Um, what's happening behind the scenes, only God knows. Yeah. Uh, so the narration uh, that comes to mind is that... Y- Always compare yourselves yeah. with people who are below you, yeah. rather than people who are above you. And if you make that a way of your life, if you if you adopt that way of thinking, yeah. you will never be lonely. You will never be upset. I mean, that's yeah. That you could almost do a show <laughs> just just on that one saying, actually, because it's sort of all aspects of sort of you know the theme of around achieving sort of economic peace that. Yeah. plays sort of a, a, a really major part in that. Um, certainly in sort of, you know, Western world, and I'm sure the world over, there very much is this notion, or particularly in the UK, this sort of keeping up with the Joneses, as yeah. they say. Yeah. Um, Our second clip is taken from an episode that aired back in April, in which the Islamic month of Ramadan took place, and Muslims the world over commenced fasting. In this episode... The presenters looked into the non-Muslim perspective of what Ramadan means and interviewed those that attempted to fast and see whether they achieved a sense of inner peace. What were their impressions and what does this month mean for them? The presenters were Arif Khan and Sufyan Faruqi. What I found interesting was that the duration, this was someone fasting for seven days and also despite being non-religious, he substituted, uh, or he recognised that prayer is a key part, so he actually meditated during the times that Muslims would normally, you know, normally be praying. So he added that into his own um, kind of day-to-day routine. And I'll just, um, in the interest of time, I'll just read out one quote here. He says, uh, talking to his housemate, so his housemate actually asked him about, you know, I'm surprised you haven't been complaining about water. And this was on day five. And he said, you know, Simone, who's his housemate, one of the biggest realizations that I've had in this thing at first, I was getting annoyed that I could not eat and drink. I was annoyed at myself for taking on this challenge. But I've realized that I'm in a very privileged position where I can be annoyed. Some people can't get annoyed that they have to wait until 8 p.m. They don't know when they're eating next or drinking next. That is their life. That discomfort and pain is their constant life of battle for survival. It is lucky that I can even be annoyed by it. Like what annoying thing in, what an annoying thing in my life. I now have to appreciate that. The annoyance is even an annoyance. So when I feel pain, I actually feel gratitude. Uh, and then he went on later on as well. He said that in conclusion, he said, the deep appreciation I got from the simplest things has inspired me for the first time ever to donate money uh, every single month to people who need it most. So, Sophia, and I think this book bears out another aspect, another benefit of fasting, which is until you've actually experience real hunger and thirst as as the the poor are have in the world and are suffering who do not know where their next meal is coming from until you've experienced that you can't fully relate and once you can relate it brings about transformations and we had this individual who then started you know donating to charity after that 
Yeah, it's uh, it's really, really inspirational. And at the root of it, I think the most practical and logical way to explain fasting to anyone that, that is even thinking or interested in why we fast, the first point I normally always start with is in, in order to be able to understand how the less fortunate feel in this world, we have to feel that pain. And fasting is just one way to do it. It gets as close as you possibly can to it. Obviously, we all know that come 8.30, uh, we're going to be able to eat or open the fridge. Uh, but there's people in this world that, that just aren't as fortunate. Exactly. Okay, so for this section of the show, we're going to speak to a, a guest here. So uh, a friend of mine called Afonso, and I only found out recently that actually Afonso had spent time um, in, in Turkey, which he'll come on to in a bit, little bit, and uh, had more experience of the month of Ramadan than I, than I thought. But no spoilers. Let's uh, get into a discussion with Afonso. So Afonso, thank you uh, for joining us. Welcome to the show. And uh, to start with, if you could just give a little bit of background about yourself, maybe the kind of, you know, your, uh, the sort of the faith tradition uh, that you came, come from, where you, where, you know, where you're from, and, and a little bit about the countries that you've lived in, just so our listeners can get a bit of context. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me, guys. Uh, yes, my name is Afonso. I'm originally from Portugal, um, where I lived until I was 13. And Portugal was a deeply, deeply Catholic country. I think last time I read a statistic, it, it was something like 90% Catholic. So it was all I ever knew. And to add insult to injury, I was brought up in, in a Catholic school. So, yeah, my experience exposure in terms of religion was just strictly speaking Roman Catholic. But when I was 13 years old, uh, my family and I, we moved to Turkey uh, where we lived for two years. And that was where I first came across uh, Ramadan and, you know, the rituals that go with it. And after that, we moved to Paris five years and eventually I came to the UK. Great, thank you for that. So, in terms of uh, of Ramadan, then, so you mentioned it was in your time in Turkey. So, how did how did you kind of come across it? What was the what was the story behind that? Yeah, um, in so so as I said, when we moved, I was quite young, thirteen. Um, I hadn't come across it at all, or to be perfectly honest, I, I hadn't heard of it, and I probably should. I probably just wasn't paying enough attention in religion class back in back in Portugal, but. Um, so the first year that I, I lived in Turkey, um, I just remember all of a sudden all my teachers and the, the staff at my school and our neighbors, they were talking about all this fasting that they had to do and how that they you know, had very strict schedules to abide by and all of a sudden you couldn't drink water or, or go out to eat. So I remember not really understanding it um, when I was first exposed to it and obviously I, I, we all wanted to know what was going on. So, so I asked my parents and, and they explained it sort of in, in vague terms, you know, it's, it's a religious practice. I mean, you, know, you guys know you're, you know, in a Muslim country, this is something that's observed. Uh, the way they phrased it to us was, well, think of it like we would look at Lent for, for Passover. So, so something similar. Um, and then you know, I just asked the, as I said, the teachers and the staff at my school, how, how they went about it. If they found it tough. I was I was really interested in I, I suppose the the strictness of it was really fascinating to me uh, how, this like code of conduct that you just had to abide by for such a long period of time I found it really fascinating. 
that's that's really really intriguing and and inspirational. But I want to get a little bit deeper, if I if I can. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so you so you mentioned like you were exposed to it in Turkey and you saw other people doing it and you liked the strictness. Uh, but oftentimes mm. people people generally aren't inspired by it being so strict. Actually, quite the opposite. People are generally turned off when when they when they see something is very rigid and strict. Uh, if you look at mm. most people especially living in the West these days. So I want to dig a little bit deeper and really get to, like, what was the inspiration? Was it just the strictness or was there something deeper that you wanted to dig into and, and figure out? Or, or, or maybe it was purely just that you saw everyone around you doing it, so you were inspired by that. But really want to, want to get into, like, what was the inspiration behind you actually taking that step and actually saying, okay, I want to do this. I want to try it. Yeah, absolutely. Um I think it was a mixture of curiosity and, and fascination. Um, yeah, initially, like you said, I think some people are put off by it, and I'm sure, you know, it's hard to remember now. There's there's nothing more unreliable than your childhood memories. But um, I'm sure when I was first told about the concept, I probably winced uh, at it and thought, "Ooh, this is this is a bit tough. It seems a bit extreme." But um, I suppose being so engrossed in it being, you know, in a completely Muslim country and, you know, so so many people around me are observing this ritual as opposed to just hearing about it as like something that a few people were doing did make me a lot more intrigued about it and I want to know more. And I think, you know, as a a, a foreigner coming into a country and being a guest, um, wanting to be respectful and be curious about, their practices and uh, was something I was quite keen on to, you know, fit in and, and learn from, from the local culture as opposed to trying to isolate myself within the little international bubble that I was in being, you know, the, the school all of that and everything. Makes sense. And, and leading on from that, Alfonso, I think I'm right in saying that, you know, mm. later on, later on in life as well, it, this was, this has been a tradition or, or a practice that you've returned to as well. So have you done this as well later on in life as an adult? Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely don't, I, I haven't ever done the, the full uh, month of, of Ramadan as an, as an adult. Uh, it's more, you know, I, I've kept a lot of, of friendships and, and connections from, from Turkey or, or with Muslim friends. And it'll be the case where we will maybe just do, just do a week or, or, or a few days of the fasting or definitely if I'm hanging out with um, Muslim friends, um as you'll know, we just hung out a few days ago. Um, you know, if if I if I'm with someone that's fasting, I'm definitely very comfortable with doing it myself. It's I just yeah. I, I, I really laugh and smile how you say, you know, I haven't done a full month, but I've just done, you know, a week as if that's a small thing. I think <laughs> it's very few. I've not really come across anyone else. I've come across people who have maybe done a day or so to experience mm-hmm. it. And, and we are, you know, there's someone, there's a YouTuber I watched recently uh, who, who covered a week, but it sounds like, you know, you've done this on and off for a while. So that's really interesting. I think it's probably more, more than you realize uh, on, in terms of reflection on it. Right. So, you know, there's, mm. there's different aspects to fasting. And I think living in an Islamic country for a period as well, you were, I think you were exposed to the fact that it's not just about not eating and drinking. There are other aspects as well. So, so I'm wondering from that point of view, like what were your kind of key takeaways? Were there more to do with the, the sort of the, 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 uh, the side of the food and the drink, or was it something deeper? What was it from your point of view? What did you gain from the experience? 
Um, I, I, I'd say, no, it wasn't just about the food and the drink because then it's almost like um, just self-imposed uh, torture. If you, pro- you know, I, I don't mean that it is torture, but if that was the only thing I took away from it, then I, I probably wasn't learning a lot from it. Um, but no, I just, I, I think to tie back to what I said about the being intrigued with the strictness of it is it made me reflect on if, if you have to abide by the, these rules, what are you meant to do with your, with the time in which you're so, um, I suppose, constrained or um, constrained. Uh, maybe that's not the right word, but maybe, maybe where you're, you know, so dedicated and you, you can really hone in on, on abiding by certain codes. So, I think while you're in that period, it's, I mean, not that I, I'm not really someone who's like practiced meditation or anything, but I do have plenty to do. And the, the way they describe it is kind of similar, you know, by putting your focus towards something, it allows you to reflect on larger aspects of your life. So for me, it was kind of about that while I'm trying to observe these rules and, uh, you know, codes of conduct, I think it's just a good time for other reflection and what you know, where, where my life is, where it's going, my relationship to friends and family. I think it's, it's a good time to ask big questions. Yeah. Introspection and reflection. Yeah. That, that definitely resonates. You mentioned Lent earlier. And uh, what are your thoughts mm-hmm. in terms of, what are your thoughts in terms of when you talk about Lent and Ramadan? What do you see there? Well, I, I think that's where the concept became really interesting for me because I think, as I mentioned from my intro, my background is super Catholic um, on paper, but we, even though, you know, I've been baptized and uh, I have spent a lot of time going through a church led education and, and, and school, we would do morning prayers and all these things. Um, that felt more like things that I had to do because um how do I put this? I had an institution tell me to do them, but when it came to Lent, which is more something that you have to drive yourself, you have to give something up. I noticed that, well, not only did I never do it, but I didn't really see anyone from, you know, my friends and family observe Lent. Maybe they would, you know, only eat fish on the Friday if we're coming up to, to Easter, but nothing very strict. So it was, it was an interesting contrast because, everything else was framed by Catholicism, but that one kind of famous ritual that we have um, seemed to be, you know, downplayed or just not observed with the same diligence and I suppose respect as I watched people go through Ramadan when I was in in, in Turkey. Wow. Yeah. Really good. uh, Really good. Interesting comparison. And I think I'm I'm really glad we got you on because you're able to pr- provide that perspective that, you know, Mio Sofiano you know, wouldn't be able to do. So that's really interesting. Our third clip is taken from an episode that aired in September entitled Consent, Clarity or Confusion. This episode was produced in the aftermath of the Women's World Cup in which the Spanish women's football team beat England in the final. But what should have been a time of great celebration was overshadowed by a sexism scandal that dominated the global headlines. The presenters examined the issue of consent with regards to when and how others touch you and the boundaries of what is and is not acceptable, and how clarity on these issues can help bring peace between men and women, and ultimately 
for society as a whole. The presenters were Hafia Khan, Dr. Anne-Marie Ionesco and Melissa Amdi. Okay, so I want to move the topic slightly to consider the role of feminine feminism in this whole issue. Melissa, I mean, feminism is a huge part in today's society. Um, but what exactly do we mean when we talk about feminism and what part does it play in this particular issue that we're discussing today? So according to the dictionary, the, dif- the dictionary definition of feminism, according to the Oxford Dictionary, states that the advocacy of women's rights on the basis of the equality of the sexes. That's the dictionary definition of feminism. Um, so Islam, according to that textbook dictionary de- definition, would most definitely agree that women's rights have clearly been defined and upheld in the highest regard, and that women and men are to be looked upon as equal and should have equal opportunity. But nowadays, feminism means lots of different things to different people. Mm. Um, I remember doing a unit on this at university about feminism and there's so many labels and forms of feminism now that it's very difficult to say that there is actually one type there's things called intersectional uh, feminism there's radical feminism postmodernist feminism i think there's actually a really long list on wikipedia about how many different kinds of feminism there are um and it's it's almost like going to an ice cream shop and choosing a flavor according to kind of what your taste is and obviously i can't go into all of them but it seems a little bit overwhelming um, to just go and cherry pick what kind of version of feminism you like. And because there's no uniformity of what feminism actually is, it almost seems a little bit, from my personal perspective, it seems a little bit pointless for everyone to believe in different versions of it because there's no there's no unity then. You're not you're not working towards necessarily the same the same um end goal of yeah. equal equal women's rights. Yeah. So so what's the Islamic view of these concepts? So Islam is quite clear that despite there being equality between um, the genders, men and women, there is nature and responsibilities which are inherently different um, between men and women. Um, just to use an example of the Holy Prophet, uh, Muhammad, peace and blessings of God be upon him, he described women as by nature are like a rib bone. Mm-hmm. And this is from Bukhari, the source. And they have the ability, women to grow and to nurture and to create life and therefore a woman's nature and capacity naturally differs from that of men who are Mm. unable to to do that so when men and women are equal their biology their nature and responsibilities in within islam are understood as different however albeit they have equal value and importance and i think that's the key point of sort of the the version of um feminism if you want to label it but from an islamic perspective that although men and women are equal that their roles and responsibilities are different um so i just want to quote something from the holy quran about the status of men and women um it's from chapter 9 verse 71 and i quote and the believers men and women are friends of one another they enjoin good and forbid evil and observe prayer and pay the zakat and obey Allah and his messenger. It is these on whom Allah will have mercy. Surely Allah is mighty wise. Um, so I think from this we can see that there are many verses actually, this is just one of them from the Holy Quran, which specifically mentions men and women being equal or showing that it's um, a symbiotic relationship between both. Mm-hmm. And Islam recognizes that there are certain roles and responsibilities which are 
sort of higher or more more important than one another. Um, as members of the Ahmadi Muslim community, we believe that His Holiness Mirza Ghulam Ahmed of Qadian was the promised Messiah, peace be upon him, whose advent in the latter days was prophesied by the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon, be upon him. And he not only came to revive Islam, but he has come as the spiritual reformer for all divine faiths. And I just wanted to quote something that he said, the promised Messiah on whom be peace said, uh, how he described the husband's role within a marriage as being like a servant to his wife, in as much that the responsibility that Islam lays upon the husband is so heavy that it makes him like a servant of his wife. Mm-hmm. Um, end quote. So I just I just wanted to pause on that point and think about how many husbands in 2023 in the West would describe themselves as a servant, and I don't mean in a sarcastic context, mm. um, for their job as a financial breadwinner or provider is actually there to support their wife doing the primary role of morally raising and upbringing their children. Mm. Um, it's a different perspective perhaps from what the wider society may may look at a marriage and, and the role and the context of, of raising children and having a family. Um, and I think in this material society that we live in, which places most emphasis, I think, on money making um, or money making potential, it, society generally in the West can tend to put down women who may choose to stay at home to raise their children, as one example. And when we're just on this point of feminism, I feel like it's important just to um, add in this point about mothers who... Um, of course, we know as mothers amongst ourselves um, and generally anyone who's listening who is a mother, we all know that there's a lot that a mother does which isn't necessarily accounted for on a wider societal level. It's not, you know, no one's standing on the sidelines giving you a clap for everything yeah. that you're doing, not that we would expect it. But it's it's important to note that this, this role of being a mother um, isn't one that's ne- necessarily celebrated um, in wider society. Um, as much as Islam might put mothers on a pedestal and put give mothers a high regard and a high status within Islam. So I think when we're talking from an Islamic perspective, what others call equality, we might describe it better as equity between the sexes and actually mm-hmm. looking at the individual circumstances of individual people and ensuring that everyone is fulfilling their responsibilities, but also receiving the rights that they are entitled to. And this has a special word in Islam. It's called hukuk al-ibad, which is the rights that are owed to God's creation. And this is um, reflective of everyone within yeah. um, in an Islamic context or not. Yes, yeah, so it's looking specifically what you're saying there is that because of the physical um, makeup of a man and a woman, um, there are certain roles and responsibilities that they have according to their physicality. And therefore... Yeah. Any in any way, whenever you are talking about the rights of women, you need equity rather than equality, because yeah. if you give equality of everything, you're actually not being equal to them because of the physical makeup, the fact that they can um, bear children, the fact that they have to feed children, whatever the, the situation might be, you're not actually taking that into consideration if you just look at the equality of the sexes rather than equity between the sexes. Have I got you? Yeah. Is, that, is that kind of what you're saying? Okay, great. I think so, yeah. Yeah, thank yeah. you. So... um. If we can just move on a little bit here, but, you know, we're talking and I think it's really important because motherhood is is a huge um, aspect of um, Islamic society um, and generally society as a whole. Society won't function unless we have mothers and mothers keep having children. Um, But, you know, what if a woman doesn't want to be a mother? You know, what if that's not interesting to her? Shouldn't we as women be able to do whatever we want 
with, you know, out any repercussions. Shouldn't that be the case? Yeah, I mean, I don't think anyone's going to hold a gun to your head and force you to be a mother. Mm. You really yeah. don't want to be a mother. Um, I think, you know, the emphasis in Islam in motherhood is because most women will be mothers in, in their lifetimes, you know, realistically speaking. Yeah. Um uh, they they will be mothers, you know, whether they have always dreamed to be mothers or, you know, whatever the context, most women, women will become mothers at some point. Um, and the, the difficulty that mothers go through in rearing, um, carrying and raising children is one that's very much recognized in Islam uh, and it's very much rewarded and put in high regard. Um, but, you know, in terms of whether women should be able to do whatever they want without any re repercussions in society at large, when we're bringing it back to the kind of context of behavior between men and women, there's definitely a tangible feeling in the air that women can do no wrong now. Um, and you have to believe all women, you know, with sexual assault allegations and merely the threat of an allegation can be completely ruinous for a man now. Um, you know, he doesn't need to be tried and convicted in court now. He's tried and convicted on social media and presumed mm. guilty, you know, uh, despite there being, you know, no proof necessarily, you know, his entire reputation is destroyed by a single accusation. Mm. Um, so it's difficult, you know, in the, in these types of situations where laying an accusation of sexual harassment and rape is something that, uh, strikes a chord with most women on some level. You know, many honourable women would struggle to understand why a woman would ever publicly lie lie about such a terrible thing. And so, you know, we assume she's telling telling the truth, but we we still have to let the court system, you know, go through the whole process. And I think the culture of women not being able to do any wrong at the moment is a really it's it's very tricky and it's it's a real problem you know ultimately women can't do whatever they want in society they can't kill or rob or commit fraud etc cetera, etc cetera. so the issue here is is that where culturally women were not permitted to get away with certain things around 100 years ago they are now able to mm. get away with it and in islam this boundary does not shift and you can never shift it according to the likes of culture you know, so the requirement of believing women in Islam is to lower their gaze, to draw their outer gar garments, to cover their chest and to guard their private parts. I mean, those are the very basic uh, requirements for a woman in, when, when in public and the requirement of men, which is actually stipulated before the command to women is to restrain mm. their eyes and guide their, the guard their private parts. And, you know, by simply asking believing men and women to lower their gaze and dress modestly uh, and guard their private parts, both publicly and privately, um, you know, it mean, it rules out a lot of behaviors we see in society now, which has led to free, you know, free intermixing and open relationships before marriage, which you can you can uh, do a root cause analysis and see that as being a major cause to the breakdown of male and female relationships in society now. Yeah. For our final clip, we draw upon a very recent episode that aired in December titled Faith and Resilience, The Palestinian Example. The presenters delve into the profound inspiration drawn from the resilience and faith exhibited by the Palestinian people. In the face of turmoil, the global community has rallied for a ceasefire, a collective plea 
for an end to the heart-wrenching scenes that have inundated our screens. In this episode, the presenters draw upon the blessed example of His Holiness, Hazrat Mirza Masur Ahmed, the supreme head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, which he himself was detained as a prisoner of conscience. The presenters were Sufyan Faruqi and Arif Khan. He was asked, you know, um, by a missionary that how did he, uh, what was his experience as a prisoner, you know, in the way of God? Uh, and this is what he said. He said, what can I tell you? I did not even realize how quickly my days had passed during my time in prison in the way of God. All I could witness were the blessings of Allah. It was at summer time and Allah the Exalted would cause the heat to turn into a cool breeze. We remained in jail behind bars without any kind of feelings of worry or stress. In my heart, I knew that the penalty for the false charges that had been brought against me was either life imprisonment or the death penalty. I was going to receive one of the two. So I decided that if it was Allah alone who I was going to seek help from, that, so, sorry, I decided that it was Allah alone who I was going to seek help from and to win his pleasure. I thought that if I was going to be handed punishment for the sake of the community, then this would be a great blessing indeed. However, Allah the Exalted had decreed something else, and he enabled me to be released from jail after 10 to 12 days. So what more can I say? I did not do anything extraordinary. I did nothing. So that was a direct quote. And then in the, sec the second uh, session, which was in Germany, um, he was asked again, how did he pass the time? And he was asked specifically, how could you pray five times a day? Were you able to pray? How did you? So what um, His Holiness uh, explained was, first of all, he said that four of the, it was him and three other men, four of them were in the same room. And he said, we would pray together in congregation. He also highlighted that the day uh, that they would perform the Juma prayer, which is where a sermon is uh, uh, read out first and specific Arabic sermon is then followed and then specific, you know, the collective prayer is performed. He, even even Juma prayer was performed during this time. He said the very first day of this whole uh, period was actually a Friday. They were still in the police station at that time, but he was able to offer the Juma prayer. He said that he himself, of course, <laughs> gave the sermon and then led led the, the, the Juma prayer. And he highlighted then, he said, we prayed together. This is throughout the whole 10 days. We prayed together. We offered voluntary prayers and we read the Holy Quran. So those are the things, Sufyan, that really stood out for me. Here's another example of, you know, um, uh, one of God's servants at a time of real trial. And you can see the conviction and the steadfastness in his faith. There was no panic. There was calmness. There was an acceptance of what was happening. But at the same time, there was no uh, you know, erring away from the obligations of prayer. And then also additional voluntary prayers were said as well. And also the study of the Holy Quran, which is completely you know, in line with the whole theme of the show, because the Quran provides such a, is such a source of uh, peace to the hearts. Yeah, and it just goes to show that yeah, while while the main focus of our of our program today has been on the the people of Palestine and their resilience, you can take these examples from the you know of people around the world getting inspiration, getting hope, becoming resilient, having having some strength when all the odds are against them and. Uh, Hazrat Mirza Masur, may God strengthen his hands. While while he was in prison on false charges, you know that was every opportunity to be like, okay, there's no hope, uh, I'm done. But he held on to that hope, and he felt, held on to his faith, and his his firm conviction that no, there is a God that is going to help me. Uh, and he was resigned to the fact that if God wills for for me to die in this cause, then so be it. And if if not, then then God will find a way for for me to get out of this uh, mess. 
uh, for lack of a better term. And in fact, we see the result of that. I mean, look at where where he is today. He's not even in the country of Pakistan. He resides comfortably here in the UK and leads a global community of tens of millions of followers. And RF, I don't know if we call it ironic or what we call it, but his one message to us today is always to pray for the people of Palestine, for ourselves, for our family, for the community, whatever it is, the first words out of his mouth, um, and may God bless him, when he became caliph, was pray, pray, pray. And this is exactly what we're seeing today, whether it be in Palestine or around the world. The Ahmadiyya Muslim community is leading by example, is leading through prayers and raising calls for a ceasefire uh, and uh, peace and comfort to be restored for for the people of of Palestine. And while, and His Holiness mentioned, while we don't have weapons and we don't have an army, uh, the one thing that we have is the weapon of prayer, and that is the weapon that that we today are using as the Ahmadiyya Muslim community in this conflict. Now, as time winds down, uh, I think uh, it's worth uh, closing the program with uh, two quotes of the Promised Messiah, Hazrat Mizra Ghulam Ahmed of Qadian, who is the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, uh, will go through one Arif uh, and then uh, dissect it and unpack it for a minute or two and then uh, time permitting go to the next one as well I'll actually start with the shorter of the two uh, and the promised Messiah said in his collection of books known as Rohani Khazain specifically uh, the book titled Noah's Ark or Kistianu in Urdu and in volume 19 page 15 he says but be not heavy-hearted. God merely tries you whether you are steadfast in his cause or not. If you desire that even angels should praise you in heaven, then suffer in the path of Allah with grace and remain cheerful. Hear abuse and remain grateful. And despite frustration, break not your ties with God. You are the last people raised by God so do such deeds of piety as touch the loftiest standards of excellence. Arif, what what do you take away from that? It's you know it's inspirational in terms of um, holding steadfastness, but I like also that you know there's an aspirational kind of thing uh, there as well, talking about you know if you desire that even angels should praise you in heaven. Mm. I think that's a wonderful wording there in terms of. Um, in terms of the ultimate goal for us, you know, is to have that status where even the angels are praying for a specific person uh, because of the deeds that are being done. So, yeah, it's, uh, you know, in a very eloquent way, he's highlighted some of the key, um, you know, inspired us really to remain steadfast, even in times of trial, not be heavy hearted, don't give up and remaining and remain cheerful, which as we spoke about earlier in the show is actually a you know, key teaching of Islam is no matter what your condition to be cheerful and optimistic. As we conclude our review of 2023, it's clear that this year will be remembered for its remarkable stories, unexpected twists and the resilience of humanity in the face of challenges. We hope this retrospective has inspired contemplation, sparked curiosity and encouraged a deeper understanding of the world around us and how Islamic principles seek to remedy the many problems facing the world today. From all of us here on the Pathway to Peace show, 
Thank you for listening. But before we draw this episode to a close, let us end with the wise words of His Holiness, Hazrat Mirza Masur Ahmad, who has been reminding us year upon year for the last two decades about humanity's obligations towards our Creator and towards each other. The following clip has been taken from his address at the National Peace Symposium that took place earlier this year on March the 4th. May the worldly leaders of today take heed of this message and have the courage to act upon it in 2024. Increasingly, academics, political experts and respected analysts are warning that we are approaching a grave period in the history of humanity. For example, the symbolic doomsday clock controlled by an international panel of scientists which forecasts the likelihood of a human-made global catastrophe was recently turned to just 90 seconds until midnight, the closest to a global disaster it has ever predicted. The scientists stated that we are living in a time of unprecedented danger and warned that there is a significant risk of global war triggered either by accident, miscalculation, or even intentionally. As we ponder over such dire warnings, the obvious question is how can the world bring an end to the cycle of warfare and bloodshed that we witness today? The world is well versed in supporting victims and those suffering injustice, as is the case with the Ukrainian nations, nation at this time. Yet, it may surprise you to hear that Islam teaches Muslims to help not only the victim of the persecuted, but also the perpetrator and oppressor. Of course, this does not mean you provide the aggressor with the means of freedom to inflict further cruelties. Rather, to help an aggressor means to stop them from committing further brutalities and injustice. Whenever, uh, whatever wrongs are being committed by the Russian state, we must keep in mind the broader picture that if the war is not brought to an end, it will lead to a deepening global crisis with potentially catastrophic results. Opposing blocs will become further entrenched. Hatreds will become even more deeply rooted, increasing the likelihood of a world war. Hence, as they continue to support Ukraine as it defends itself, world powers should also be making every possible effort to end the war through peace talks and good faith negotiations. Otherwise, I fear the war will spread beyond Europe and eastwards towards Asia, and who knows where it will stop. For many years, I have warned of the risks of a full-scale world war and have spoken of how its deadly and destructive consequences are far beyond our comprehension. Having long warned of such a war, I take no satisfaction in the fact that we are moving ever closer to it and that others are now expressing similar sentiments and fears.
Rather, I feel only grief and anguish as I see the world hurtling ever faster towards the terrifying world war in which the lives of millions of innocent people <coughs> will be lost or permanently destroyed. Moreover, what kind future will we have, uh, will we leave behind to those who are yet to come? Instead of bestowing a legacy of peace and prosperity to our future generations, our parting gift to them will be nothing except death, destruction, and misery. Certainly, it is my grave fear that today's geopolitical tensions could spiral out of all control and ultimately lead to a nuclear war. We should be under no illusion about the fact that if, God forbid, a nuclear weapon is ever used, it will strike the earth with such velocity and force that its toxic effects will be felt for decades to come. Hundreds of thousands or even millions will surely die either instantly or in the aftermath. Those who survive will suffer miserable and torturous lives as they seek to pick up the shattered pieces of humanity. As for the devastating impact on future generations, countless infants will be born with genetic defects and disabilities as a result of the perpetual effects of radiation. Thus, with all my heart, I pray that may Allah Almighty have mercy upon humanity and may the people of the world, especially its leaders and policymakers, see sense before it is too late. I pray that instead of warmongering and saber rattling, they utilize all their faculties and resources to foster peace and security for all peoples and nations. Rather than seeking to feed their egos and satisfy their lust for power by fueling wars, may they recognize their responsibilities to safeguard humanity for the sake of people today and for our future generations by making policies that end all forms of conflict. May they be the guardians of peace and prosperity rather than the agents of war and bloodshed. As a religious person, I firmly believe that this can only happen when mankind sets aside its selfish ways and materialistic desires and comes to recognize and worship the one God and strives to fulfill his rights and act upon his teachings. I pray that may Allah the Almighty grants people wisdom and may all mankind manifest those principles of principal objectives that the creator and master of this world, Allah the Almighty, desires from us to fulfill his rights and those of his creation. Amen.